morning. Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Ephesians. We're in chapter 4, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 16. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You may be seated. Amen. Amen, indeed. Um, good morning. My name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here at Stonehouse Church. And, uh, man, this is a great text. We are very blessed to be able to dig into Ephesians 4 today. Uh, if you're new with us, welcome. We're glad to have you. We hope wherever you find yourself in the spectrum of faith uh, that you feel welcomed in this place and more than anything, encouraged to look at Jesus. Um, if you happen to look at us we hope the primary thing that you would see is that in our failings, we are pointing toward uh, a gracious Savior who has loved us and redeemed us. Um, and so whether you're a believer or a skeptic or doubter, this is a place where you can be free to look uh, at Jesus and consider his way, consider his words, consider his life, uh, and consider what he's doing in a foolish mess of a group of people. Um, sorry talking about me. Anyway, um, God is here and he's loving us actively. Um, and through his word, he's continuing to show us more of the glory of Jesus. And so I hope that we behold that together uh, this morning. I want to repeat two quick announcements before we jump into uh, what is a formidable amount of content for the day. So we're going to get right into it. But uh, we break from our regular city group weekly meetings. Uh, so Sarah said earlier, we've got these city groups that meet throughout the city. The first week of June, 
is the last week those groups will hold their weekly meetings, um, after which we'll just do summer in the rhythms of summer, lots of vacations, lots of chill time, um, getting together still as a family as, as we have opportunity. Um, but uh, we just pull ourselves back from that uh, kind of rigid rhythm just to allow uh, the freedom uh, to experience community in a different way. So that break will, will last from June into uh, September. We'll get that going in September. Uh, and then also we've got shampoo and conditioner and body wash and stuff in the back. If you didn't hear that announcement, uh, feel free to grab a bag of that. Uh, the kids put it together for us, a really fun little project they did a couple weeks ago. And uh, so you can keep some with you and bring it along to share with folks um, that you might meet on the streets who would be blessed um, by having that. So uh, if you want, just keep it on yourself or in your car or backpack and uh, be ready to give it out. So, all right, I, um, yeah, I'm just going to pray. We're going to jump in because this is good. Here we go. God, thank you so much um, for the grace you've given us in Christ, for uh, the favor that you've given us to um, be able to gather and uh, peaceably assemble um, so that we might look to Jesus, worship him, uh, benefit from the fellowship of your uh, one body. And um, yeah, we uh, have received so very much um, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. So many things in our lives are a gift to us, uh, the undeserved lot that we are, um, and they come from the hand of a holy, perfect, pure, uh, and wonderful God who has loved us so much that he is the one, you are the one that made the way possible uh, for you to even bless us. Um, it's all you. <laughs> uh, everything you've done is staggering and amazing and colossal in its effect. Uh, and we pray that as we consider it today that it might be what spurs us to action, uh, that what you have done would lead us into uh, the activity of living out this faith. Um, thank you for Ephesians. What a book. Thank you for the first three chapters. I pray uh, that you would pull so much of that to our remembrance today as we've heard it over the last several weeks uh, so that it might fuel uh, our entrance into chapter 4 and uh, the last uh, other chapters of Ephesians. Uh, we need your help today because there is a religious system around us that proclaims something drastically different than what Paul is telling us here today. Um, so just like Paul prayed at the end of chapter 3 in Ephesians, God, would you strengthen us in our inner being that we might know the love of God and that out of that knowledge would spring uh, all of life. We ask your, pr your presence here. Uh, your spirit's help in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I don't have much by way of introduction other than to say uh, what I just prayed, and that is that we have three chapters worth of stuff that has built up behind this moment um, leading into chapter 4. And so uh, early on in our study of Ephesians, we talked about kind of the bifurcation of the book, that chapters 1, 2, and 3 uh, was Paul unfolding uh, the deep theological truths of the gospel, right? And sometimes when I say deep theological truths, we like check out and walk away, right? But what we've seen again and again in chapters 1, 2, and 3 is that these things are, are, are clear to see, 
right? That they were once a mystery, but that mystery has been revealed in such a way that we can see them, we can know them, and the Spirit actually gives us help to not just know them in our brains, but to know them in our hearts and in our souls and actually see them uh, work out in our lives, right? And so we've said things like God has done a great work to call us and to save us, that we were dead in our sins and trespasses, that we were enslaved to the to the uh, evil schemes, the, the plotting devil who reigns over the, the kind of the powers of the air, um, and that this was our lot as sinners, as, as fallen creatures, but that God in his great love for us, pursued us, that reconciled us, that he therefore has made peace between us and God, and that also he's made peace between us and our brothers and sisters, and that this peace is only possible through the work of Jesus. And two times in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, Paul prays for the church at Ephesus, which also means uh, that we can grab that prayer and say it's for us. And the prayers are kind of shocking, right? Paul doesn't pray the kind of stuff that we're prone to pray. It's not like a, a chastisement on us to stop praying what we pray for, but it is an encouragement to maybe expand uh, those things that we pray for. Because Paul is praying that we'd be strong to know the truth of God. Paul is praying that we would see the, the, the theological truths of the gospel become more than just ideas to us, but that they would become deep and intimate knowledge to us, things that transform the way we relate to God and to others. And so Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus is not, man, I hope you, um, you know, everybody doesn't get sick and your cars all run really well and you all get promotions and bonuses and that you get that house that you've been wanting to buy. And he's, that's not what he's praying. He's praying for spiritual revelation to take place in the church. And that's so much uh, so also what we need. And so what we have here in chapter 4, verse 1 is Paul turning the corner or turning the page, so to say, in Ephesians. And I'm going to try to make it very clear that uh, Paul intended to make this change, this transition, that this isn't just something that theologians have cooked up to say, yeah, you know, this is what Paul's doing. But we actually see from Paul's writing that he's making a, a significant transition uh, in this section of the letter. Uh, so to be fair, when Paul wrote it, it wasn't Ephesians 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. It was just a letter, uh, but this was definitely a hinge point in the letter. Um, and so read verse 1 with me again in chapter 4. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. All right? So let's get into this. Two words, I therefore. <laughs> We're going to spend a lot of time talking about this therefore, and we like to talk. We like to say that if there's a therefore in Scripture, we want to know what it's there for. Um, we don't want to just pass over the therefore. There's a, there's a lot of loaded content when a therefore is used in Scripture. So in the beginning of chapter three, and also in verse fourteen of chapter three, Paul says, "For this reason." So he makes a similar transition there, um, and, and he kind of shows us why he's praying what he wants to pray. That's kind of what he says in that for this reason. But the therefore in this. Uh, in this verse here is a therefore that covers all of the preceding chapters, okay? And so Paul, in the closing three chapters of Ephesians, is going to tell us much about what we ought to do, okay? He will implore us toward a particular response. He will implore us to action, right? And what uh, just a, like a 30-minute uh, perusing through chapters 3 Four, uh, or I mean four, five, and six, uh, for me anyway, I found at least 
46 commands that Paul gives in these three chapters, okay? Uh, you could maybe get a little more nitpicky and come up with more than 46, but somewhere around 46 commands that Paul gives us in these three chapters, right? So one of the reasons we can see clearly that Paul's making a transition is that in chapters 1, 2, and 3, anyone want to take a guess on how many commands we have? Basically zero. There's kind of one. There's kind of one, but basically zero, right? The one command that's in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 is this, remember. I mean, that's... So Paul is overwhelmingly transitioning in these final three chapters. 46 commands to one-ish, <laughs> Right? There is a, a significant change here. But before Paul begins a single one of these commands, he makes this verse begin with the word, therefore. Right? The whole, uh, the whole point of chapters 1, 2, and 3 is to show us what God has already done. And if we get that mixed up with what God is calling us to do, we get all of kind of the commands turned upside down. And there's some terms that have been used throughout history to kind of help us understand uh, the division of kind of Paul's writing here, and that's the terms indicative and imperative, okay? So I'm going to use those two words, the indicative and the imperative. I think you've got a slide, right? So this might help. So this is referring to like the usage of language in particular having to do with verbs, okay? So verbs have moods, right? Like have you ever texted somebody and said, um, you forgot to put the I in front, and so you say, like, I have something, and instead of putting the I, you just put have something, because when you text, you short-term. When you miss the I, you change the mood of the verb, so it sounds like you're commanding them to do something rather than saying, I have done something, right? So there's, there's, there's transitions or changes in the mood of verbs here that uh, help us to understand kind of what's going on with uh, not only Paul's writing, but really all of Scripture. So the indicative mood, uh, or the indicatives, that the reality here is that they express an objective fact or reality. Okay, there's a there's a root word in there, indicate. Right, there's an indication of something ha that has happened. Right, so an indicative verb makes a statement or an asks a question. It is declarative. It denotes a clear assertion, and it has a ring of certainty to it, right? And so I know this, this is like teachy-teachy right now, but I promise this is all going to come down and, and make a whole lot of sense for us. So that's what an indicative is, is basically a declared statement of something that's been done or something that exists, okay? The imperative, then, is an expressed command. The imperative is an order or a request or an exhortation. Right? An imperative verb calls us to act, to make a decisive move, or to make a responsive action. Okay? So the indicative makes a statement of something that has happened or has been done. Uh, the imperative makes a statement of you should do or you must do, like a command or an order. Right? So just some examples. Your gas tank is getting empty. Right? Your gas tank is getting empty is an indicative. It is a true statement of something that is happening. 
or has happened, right? The tank is getting empty. What is the associated imperative then? You should go to 7-Eleven and fill up, right? There's an indicative that leads to an imperative, right? And that's a really simple analogy, but if you just simply tell somebody you should fill up your gas, like there's no immediate like weight to that reality. Like, oh yeah, I should whenever I get around to it. No, no, like the light's on, empty. Oh, I better get to it, right? There's, a, there's an associated urgency to that reality. So uh, another example, hey, is that a Sasquatch walking over there, right? That's an indicative. There's something that's happened. There's a Sasquatch. What's the imperative? Get your camera out, fool. Take a picture of a Sasquatch walking in the woods, right? Something has happened, and it requires a response. Get out your camera. We can get on that true TV show and have the footage of the Sasquatch, right? Did you see a Sasquatch in Grand Canyon? No? Today, it is either going to be raining or pouring, <laughs> right? It is either going to be raining or pouring. That is an indicative statement. The imperative then would be, you will want to forego your plans to visit the beach, right? Rain all day long leads me to an, a decisive action that says I am not going to go to the beach, right? So theologically, then, these terms or these moods of verbs are used all over the Bible, all over the Bible. And on the indicative side of things, what we find through writer after writer after writer of Scripture is that there are declarations of the reality of what God has done. Those are theologically are indicatives, giant, clear, true statements that say this is what God's done, right? This is what God's done in Christ. This is what God's done in history. These are truths about the activity of God. Those are the indicatives of Scripture. And then the imperatives, theologically, call on believers to live in a particular way. But the important distinction in indicatives and imperatives is that the imperatives, the commands are never to be followed in order to earn the imperatives or the indicatives. I don't do the things to earn the activities of God, right? And that's where doctrinally and, and just culturally, as, 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 as a religious people, as a, a general religious people, we can get really confused and really weighed down and really kind of plugged up in the commands of Scripture because we've missed all along the indicatives which lead to the imperatives. So the first three chapters of Ephesians were largely in the indicative, okay? Meaning that in them we find Paul saying mostly God has done this for you. That is mostly what Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 has been about, right? He says, you were like this and have become like that because of God's work. Largely 
indicative. And now the last three chapters of Ephesians are largely in the imperative, meaning that in them we find Paul predominantly saying, live this way, right? Do this, don't do that. But all of those live this way, do this, don't do that, have preceding them these first words, I therefore, right? So this first verse of chapter 4, Paul simply says, I therefore urge you, right? I, because of everything that I've already said about who God is, what he's done, where you were, and how you got changed by what God's done for you, all of that stuff therefore leads me to urge you towards something. And that's where we're going to end up seeing in the next several weeks the 46 promptings from Paul. Kevin DeYoung helps this with a very clear statement, helps us understand with a very clear statement. He says, God has called us by his grace and blessed us in Christ. It's essentially the, the, the very large... Uh, banner flying over chapters 1, 2, and 3. God has called us by his grace and blessed us in Christ. It's God's activity. Therefore, we must live out our calling in Christ as his holy and beloved people. The indicative fuels the imperative. The imperative does not earn the indicative. So these first three chapters that we've been through so far has been Paul saying, this is true. And by faith, this is yours. Because God started it, and God finished it, and God is carrying it out. And what is deeply important is that all of these things are yours because of his activity and not yours because you have not merited what God has done. You have not earned it. And so what we'll see in the next several weeks, chapters 4, 5, and 6, is that because of these indicatives being true, both you should respond like this and you can respond like this. Okay, The you can respond like this is a very important element of responding. Because if we look at Ephesians 2, we're told we're dead before Christ saved us and brought us to life. And so actually there's a, a truth attached to that life is that if you're not brought to life in Christ, you actually can't respond. You don't have the power to respond because Christ isn't in you by the Holy Spirit to empower you to live, right? And so the imperatives are you should respond like this and you can. It's almost like a you get to, right? Now that you're beloved daughters and sons of the king who made you, who loved you, you can love other people. You can enter a worshiping community and find unity. You can lay your life down for the benefit of others. You can do these things, and you should. That's what we see in these imperatives. And so this vital distinction between these two uh, imperatives and indicatives helps us to see really all of Scripture correctly. A lot of times people might think that this distinction is only a New Testament distinction, but it's actually not true, and it's all, it's, it's all over in the Old Testament. It's all over, right? Uh, God says to Moses, I <laughs> have rescued you from slavery in Egypt and made you my own. Therefore, 
the Ten Commandments. Right? But we're prone to forget the first part. God delivered Israel from slavery and then gave them commandments. He worked 12, 12 or 10, 12 miracles to defeat the, the false gods of Egypt, right? Who made the locusts come? Who gave the, uh, made the Nile blood run with blood? Who put the curse on the firstborn? It wasn't, it wasn't Israel, it was God. It was all God's work to deliver Israel out of Egypt. And then when they're in the wilderness, called out by God to worship him in fullness, then he gives them the Ten Commandments and the, the following rest of the law, right? So we see this, uh, this imperative indicative thing is, is in all of Scripture. It isn't just a New Testament thing, but we definitely know Paul in his writing uh, makes some very intentional and strategic things where his letters are, are almost split at moments where it's clear that, you know, in the beginning he's been just declaring the truth of the gospel, and then following that he says, now, because that's true, you respond, right? And if we've been raised in a general Christian environment, we've probably, in, in you know, kind of, uh, engage several places where we've just simply been given commands and we've been told to do's and we've been read lists and we've just been given a new list week after week right to just change the focus and week after week what do we do we continue to not be able to fulfill the list why because we've missed what's behind all of the imperatives we've missed the indicative truth of God has worked for us and we fall into the trap of either pride or despair. And we talk about this all the time, where if we think we're doing good at fulfilling the list, we're arrogant and we look down on others with judgment. Um, and we think, well, we don't really need God's help. Or on the other side, we fall under the weight of the to-do list and we just give up because we can never achieve it. All the while, we're thinking that our to-doing is earning something before God, while it's not because what's true about who God is and what he's done in Christ precedes all of these imperatives. And in this imperative and indicative reality, we see the good news of the gospel. Because here's the truth. There is no way that you are good enough or strong enough or pure enough to be able to live your life in a way that doesn't need the grace of God. You cannot live before God in perfect righteousness. You cannot and you will not. Your life is not a life that doesn't need grace. Your life is a life that needs abundant grace. And it's God's work in Christ that is what can erase your blemishes, your sin, wash over your wretchedness to make you worthy to stand before him. But also, you're not good enough, but also you're not so bad as to not be loved by God. You're not so broken as to not be pursued by God. You're not so far and defiled and out of the reach of the grace of God because he has done the work which can bring you from death to life. So therefore, you're not so good that you don't need grace and you're not so bad that he's not giving you grace. We have both of these realities in our lives, which is why the imperatives of Scripture precede, uh, the indicatives that precede the imperatives because of the reality that we need to be humbled before God. 
We need to know we can't do it alone. But we also need to be lifted, do we not? We need to be encouraged by the truth that we are deeply loved. We need both of these realities, sometimes more than others, but we, we must have them both, and the imperatives or the indicatives declare them to us. God has done this, not because you're good, right? But God has done this even though you're bad. His love is so great that he has done these things. And then when we live out of that reality, we're able to be led into a life that is lived out of humility because we know it's not earning anything for us, but also live out a life of confidence knowing that God has got us. And so in these three, the second half of Ephesians We'll see Paul give us commands, and all along he'll be attaching them to the work of Jesus, both with this word, therefore, and even in the midst of some of the commands. In chapter 4, example, verse 28, Paul says this, let the thief no longer steal, right? Paul makes a command. He says, stop stealing. It's a very clear command. We know what we should do to respond to that. We should not steal. But he doesn't just say, don't steal, guys. Right? He leads us towards some other things. Let the thief no longer steal, verse 28 of chapter 4, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his hands. So he says, don't steal, but he just push him, pushes us toward a positive. And then he pushes us into something even bigger. He says, so that... He might have something to share with anyone in need. And he actually connects the action of leaving stealing and moving into laboring. He connects that to Jesus by saying so that you can share. Because what do you have? A bunch of stuff that's been shared with you. By who? Jesus. Right? So our obedience to not steal and to work, to earn, so that we can share is all connected to the life of Jesus that he gave, that he shared, that he laid down. So not only do we see that therefore God's done all these things, but also we see the connection of Christ's work to the actual commands. And Paul does this in several places in the letter that we'll study, and he's also done it in others. In 1 Corinthians 6 is another example. Paul commands Christians to flee sexual immorality. Right? He calls them away from the way the world behaves with their body. He says, don't behave that way. Flee sexual immorality. And he couples that command with the truth that our bodies belong to God. There's a reality of ownership that has been declared, that has happened because Christ has made us his. Therefore, don't give your bodies over to sin because you belong to God. And one of the best examples that we get of this connection is right off the bat here. Paul opens this chapter or this section of the letter by saying, therefore, I urge you, and he immediately moves into the imperative to maintain unity. So here's verses 1 through 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, 
bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So Paul's very first command is a command towards unity. What's really cool about this command is that it's connected to so much that he's already said. In verse 3, he says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Right? So he, he helps connect it to a work that's already been done because previously in Ephesians, we've seen who made the unity. Jesus made the unity. We talked about the, the wall between Jew and Gentile and the wall between uh, different religions and hostilities and that that wall has been torn down by what? By Christ's work and Christ's work alone. So he's actually created the unity and Paul calls us to maintain what's already been given. Right? The imperative is already connected to the indicative. Jesus has done this great work to tear down the wall of hostility. And that's a whole message a couple weeks ago. I encourage you to check it out if you didn't hear it. That God has done that work to bring the two together and to make one, right? Which is the motivation of all of our unity. It's not you be unified by changing your mind and becoming like me. It's not me become unified by changing my mind and becoming like you. It's both of us being unified by changing our minds, plural, to become like Christ's, singular. Why? Because we have, what Paul lays out, we have one body and one spirit and one hope and one Lord and one faith and one baptism. We have a unity that's centered on who God is and what he's done. Therefore, Paul calls us urgently toward that unity. And we can't forget that Paul's making this call specifically to a church, right? And actually, we, we often, because of how individualistic we are in our country, we take most of the imperatives of Scripture and we make them individual. And we miss out on so much of the richness of following Jesus, right? Like, listen, the commands of Scripture are for you, yes. But even more so, the commands of Scripture for y'all, right? That's how Southerners pluralize you. Use guys if you're from the Northeast, right? Like again and again in the epistles, when the word you is used, you should have a footnote. If you've got a Bible with footnotes, it'll say a one or a two or a six or a 20 next to it or whatever. And then down at the bottom of the page, it'll say the you is plural here. And also in verse 12 and also in verse 22. You'll see that in your Bible if you have a Bible with notes again and again. The you is plural. And because English, we don't have a difference between you and you. Like you and you. It's the same word to us. But thank God for Georgia, y'all, you know, amen. That helped us pluralize you. Even though it sounds ridiculous. <laughs> Love you guys. In Minnesota, they say use. My uncle, use, use. It's funny. I love it. So these commands are, 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 they're collective commands. Oh, that we would understand the beauty of this, right? This isn't a Lone Ranger road, right? This isn't a walk for you alone. This is for you together with me, with the one next to you and the ones behind you. For y'all, because the unity is for all and the commands are for all and when we see the commands are for all we have this the, this beautiful thing of not living isolated but also having the genuine accountability of walking in faith with others that we recognize oh he's been commanded what 
she's been commanded what they've been commanded what i've been commanded we've been commanded all these things and if we're going to live into the beauty of them we've got to do this together we've got to do this with the help of one another and the encouragement of one another and watching somebody else do it and go oh yeah cool and moving on and then seeing the deeper motivations of the obedience of one person help us to remember oh that's right i do this because of what christ has done for me i remember the cross therefore i lay my life down in sacrifice i see that jesus was willing to leave heaven and come to earth so therefore i'm willing to move into that neighborhood or engage in that relationship because i'm going to move outward like jesus moved outward toward me this all of this beauty of seeing one another seek to respond to these imperatives because of what's true in what God has already done. And so one of the uh, fruits kind of being expressed out of the power of what the gospel has done is that we will be unified. And the last few verses of our passage, we'll get to it in a minute, show us that maturity as a body as a church, as a people, is growing more into the unity of Christ, is growing more into the clarity of knowing who he is and how we are to respond to him, to all be pulled upward into that unity rather to be pulled into our own ideas and our own, our own kind of uh, pathways and different things, but we're moving upward into Christ. But what's important here is that unity that Paul calls us to is not uniformity. Okay? Paul calls the church to unity, but not to uniformity. Okay? And what he says in the next verse helps us to see that. But grace, verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So verses 1 through 6 is all, 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 right? Declarations of unity for all, all, all. And then verse 7, he pulls back from that all language, and he says each one, right? Each one. And so there's a distinctiveness in living out this unity. We don't all just dress the same, talk the same, walk the same, like the same things, play the same music, go to the same places, live in the same neighborhoods. There's, there's diversity even in our unity, right? And then moving forward, he kind of lays out what has happened in that Jesus has given uh, to many people these different gifts. S.M. Bowell says this, the idea of grace according to the measure of Christ's gift in verse 7 does not refer to different levels of saving grace, but of grace given to serve Christ's church okay so he's not saying there's a different amount of grace for salvation for everyone that's not the 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 word he's using here for grace Uh, he's saying there's a different amount there's a there's differing gifts there's differing grace gifts if you if you summarize that in the greek it's charismata and john stott says this the unity of the church is due to charis which is grace we are unified because of god's grace having reconciled us to himself but the diversity of the church is due to charismata god's gifts distributed to church members Right? And so these gifts of grace can come to us because of the work of Jesus himself who rules the body as its head and there are different gifts given to different people for different purposes which add up to make us all a body. Right? And Paul expounds on this in, in 1 Corinthians 12 
where in verse 14 he says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. So there's unity because it's one body, but it's not uniformity because there's lots of different kinds of body parts. Right? It helps us to understand the diversity of the body. And in verses 4 to 6 of 1 Corinthians 12, he says, There are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of service, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. And so Paul seeks to help the church understand that we ought to strive for unity. But the way that we're going to strive for unity is by each person doing their different part. And it's Jesus who was ascended, which is what verses 8 through 10 are all about. Jesus came down to earth, right? 100% man, 100% God. And then after he rose from the dead, was physically alive, had a body you could touch and see. He ate fish. He hung out with the disciples, right? And then that Jesus in his physically resurrected form ascended into heaven. And it says, and then when he did that, he gave gifts to the church. And one of the important things about these gifts is that Jesus decides the gifts and who gets them. So Jesus outfits his body according to his plan so that the whole thing might cooperate and grow. This is glorious, right? But in this reality of differing gifts, sometimes we can, uh, we can fall off to the side in like this competition thing, Right? Where, and then Paul has to correct that in Corinthian church. He says, listen, you guys, the gift thing isn't a competition, right? It's not about who's better or who's worse because of what they can do. Jesus decided who gets to do what. And so just live into the thing that he's given you to do. Because why? Are you earning something with the stuff you're doing? Absolutely not. You've forgotten the truth of what God's already done. And so we have this beautiful opportunity to pursue unity together, but with our varied gifts. And so we see that these gifts are given by Jesus, who is the ascended one. And we see that the nature of these gifts is that they're, very, uh, they're varied, they are various. And then finally, we see that the purpose of these gifts is service. So I'm going to read from verses 11 onward. He says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so we see in these gifts, and this is, uh, just a brief list of some of the gifts that Jesus gives. There are other lists in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. Right? Did I get those right? Yep. And it seems with the different lists that Paul's making that probably none of his lists are intended to be exhaustive. Right? So he's not saying this list over and above this list. He's just saying these are some of the different things that the Spirit enables us to do because of the gift of Jesus Christ. Right, But in this specific verse, in verse 11, he, he talks about apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors, teachers. And we could get into a long conversation about this, but we see that the foundation of the church, as, as has already been talked about, is the apostles and the prophets. 
that those who knew Christ saw him resurrected and proclaimed as they were sent by him and began to build the church, that those guys were a gift to the church, right? And then they wrote down what we're reading here to continue to help instruct us into the unity of Jesus. That was the role of those apostles, and that was a great role. And those guys fulfilled it with persecutions and endured suffering, and they gave their lives to do the job that they were given. And it was all a gift of God to the church, that it might grow and build in unity. And also he talks about prophets, which basically a prophet is kind of a mouthpiece of God, those that are declaring the truth about God, those who have received special revelation and are making proclamation of that special revelation. In chapter 3, we saw Paul talk about how he had received the special revelation and was communicating that to the church. We also see Peter says that that happened to him, that he saw the glorified Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, and therefore he's commanding the church and delivering them the truth of what God has already done, right? And then what did those prophets do? They wrote down for us these words of God. And so today, we don't need new revelation. We just need the same true revelation communicated in new ways. So anybody that claims that they're a prophet and is saying anything different than the Bible, we need to tell them, hey, you need to sit down and not talk anymore because you're only supposed to tell what's already been told in Scripture, right? So if you have any confusing history with some of those types of things, there's some real clear stuff that God's already given us, right? We can measure everything with Scripture and know what's true and know what's reliable because who God is, what He's done, what it's changed in us, that's all solid. We can look at it and we can know for sure what it is. And anytime I ever or Jason or anybody that stands up here that says anything divergent from the Word of God, we're given the body to challenge that, right? We absolutely should do that. The only reason we would ever let anybody up here is because we believe that Christ in them is able to lead us towards clarity of Scripture. Not for them just to kind of start talking about their own ideas. We talk about what God's given us, right? And then it's the gift of God to give us evangelists and pastors, um, people that are going to proclaim the gospel, shepherd the flock, teach people about God. It's glorious to learn about who Jesus is and to be brought in to that unity. And the whole point of all of that work is what? So that the saints, verse 12, would be built up to do the work of ministry. Paul defeats right here any kind of idea that ministry is for professionals. He says the whole point of God, of Jesus giving these gifts is so that all of the members of the body can be equipped to do what they're supposed to do. Because without an arm, we're toast, right? Without a leg, we're not walking. Without these, but we're, we're, we're falling short of the ideal of the hope of what Jesus has done. And so we're pushed into this, everybody's together in this, right? There's a glorious reality. There are distinctions in roles but we've all got work to do. And some of us might be in a place where we're like figuring that out. What, what, what do I do? <laughs> right, what do I do? What, what, is, what kind of grace has Jesus given me to do something here? Not so that I can earn. I already know it's not earning because of all of the truth that I've already proclaimed in Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3. So it's not about earning, but God's given me something here. God's given me gifts and capacities Jesus is building his church through his church. That's how it happens. It's a beautiful thing that together we can carry the weight of this and grow into maturity. 
So verses 14 and closing all the way through 16, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so we know this full well. There are doctrines and philosophies that seek to derail you from the truth of what God has done. There are winds of doctrine. There are worldly uh, philosophies. There is, there is the wisdom of this age that wants to pull you further and further away from the truth of the gospel that Paul's helped us to see so well in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. Some of them are religious. They're attached to kind of churchiness. Some of them are irreligious. They're attached to the, 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 the modern, current trajectory of the world. And they are leading us, or they seek or try to lead us astray from what is true. And God has given us teachers and given us one another that we might be bolstered and strengthened, that we might see more clearly the glories of what Jesus has done so that we would be held by them, held by him, not tossed around, that our boat would get bigger so that the seas that rage would not toss us overboard, that God would build us together in love. And how is he doing that? He's giving us all a part in that, attaching us to one another, putting us in relationships, some of us to be leaders, some of us to be servants, some of us to be behind the scenes, some of us to be up here talking. He's given us different points, but he's connected us all together so that we might grow into that maturity where we can stand firm in the truth of God and not be sideswiped by these false doctrines in the world and not be overcome by the sins that would so easily entangle us, but that we could grow up together into Jesus Christ. Right? It's, it's beautiful that the imperatives that Paul lays out here begin with be the church. Be the church and grow. That's how it starts. Paul says, I therefore urge you to get involved with this thing that Jesus is doing because he's given you a part to play and you get to enjoy that. And you get to be a, a part of securing people in the steadfastness of Jesus. You get to be a part of growth and maturity. And it's not just one way, right? Like, you're going to share. You're going to enjoy while you also bring joy. Right? You're going to teach while you're also instructed. You're going to strengthen while you're also enc encouraged. No single person stands at the top of this mountain. Not at all. We're together. Paul urges us, therefore, because of all this beautiful work that Jesus has done, join. Join this family. Right? Dig in with these people. Glorify Jesus together. Not because it's going to earn us something before God, but because all of the earning has already been done in Jesus, and we're simply responding. And not only should we respond, but we're actually able to respond because of Christ in us. Amen? I love to see what Jesus is doing among us. He is active. 
literally active right here in this room. And as we spread all throughout the city, God is building. And that's encouraging, right? Like Sebastian said last week, let us focus on the fact that God has us. That no matter where we are, whether it's down on Central or here at the Police Athletic Club, like he said last week, we are in the hands of God. And that Jesus is our head building us as a body. So let's grow into that in response to what he's done. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the great grace that we've been given, that we have been brought from death to life. And God, I pray for uh, anyone here that might have been so heavily under the kind of the pressure of the duties of religion. God, that you would relieve those burdens, that you would pull us into the enjoyment of the finished work of Jesus. And that from that full finished work of Jesus that we would be uh, that we would be released out into a loving obedience that is empowered by grace in our different areas in our different ways and in the different diversities that we have that we would be pulled into the body of Jesus by the work of Jesus to the glory of Jesus and that Lord we would not think that our response is earning anything for us Lord, we know we are prone to wander into that destructive theology. Lord, would you pull us again and again, week in and week out, day in and day out, pull us back into the truth of what's already been done for us in Jesus. That today we are fully loved by God. That right this moment we are righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus. That as we stand and sing in a moment, we'll rejoice in the fact that we've been made yours by your pursuit, by your sending of your son, by his perfect life and his substitutionary death and his victorious resurrection. We belong to you, God. Now we simply get to live out of a new nature, obedience and joy and love and service to the glory of God who has saved us. Thank you. Build us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. As is our custom on Sunday morning, we'll spend time uh, worshiping and responding. Uh, we intentionally build our service after the indicative imperative paradigm. I don't know if that's a noticeable thing, but it's intentional. We reserve most of our singing for afterward because we want to sing in response to the truth that we've heard. Right? So most time on Sunday morning, I stand up here and I proclaim what has been done for you. And then I invite you to respond. Right? It's straight up indicative imperative. And so as we worship, we're not earning something before God. Right? That's why we intentionally don't have the pressure of like, come on, sing louder. Come on, put your hand in the air if you're really feeling it. Like, listen, that's up to you. That's up to you. That is not up to me. And if you don't do it, that doesn't mean nothing. It doesn't mean a thing. You're not something because of any of that. You're something because Jesus made you something. Right? So all of our worship is connected to this indicative and imperative stuff. And it's very intentional. We want to respond. We want to say, look at what you've done, Jesus. 
you're worthy of my singing. That's one of the things Paul's going to get into in Ephesians 4. Sing. (laughs) It's a command. He says, sing. Sing alone and sing together. Sing. Right? So stand with me. Sing. When you're ready, take communion. It's over here. Dip the bread in the cup. Let's respond to the beauty of the gospel.